From Northwest Public Broadcasting, I'm Matt Loveless, and this is how we ended up here. The last time we were here was just about a week before Washington's August primary, and we learned quite a bit about the state's top two primary system. Right now, we're interested in revisiting that primary. As it turns out, a lot of people were really interested in this primary. As of mid-August, the Secretary of State's office had counted more than 2.5 million ballots, a turnout of more than 54%. By comparison, the August primary four years ago drew less than 35% of voters. And the last time the state passed 50% in any primary was in 1964. So why such a big jump? How did we end up here? For this episode, I've solicited the help of two people for whom this topic pinged their radar, Associated Press political reporter Rachel LaCourt. Rachel, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And the director of the Thomas Foley Institute for Public Policy at Washington State University, Cornell Clayton. Cornell, we appreciate your help here today as well. My pleasure, Matt. Well, first, Rachel, you did some reporting on this. I actually found a story of yours as I was researching some of my own numbers for this podcast. What were some of the major revelations as you researched this story? Well, I've covered elections in Washington state for 15 years now, and I'm used to high general turnout in the November election and then pretty low turnout considering that we have a pretty easy voting system here for the primary. And I, leading up to election day, I always watch the um, ballot return status that the Secretary of State posts every day. And once I saw it past that 50% mark, I knew that something different was happening this year. But it wasn't until I kind of did the research into the history that I realized how significant it was that it had been more than five decades since we had seen a turnout like this. And what makes it even more remarkable is that the voting, um, the size of the voters here, the size of the voting electorate is triple what we saw back in 64. So we obviously have a very engaged population right now. And Cornell, it would probably be good to clear up a few things about the election process itself. A lot of talk lately about mail-in voting. How has the voting process changed in terms of the way people can vote in the state? Well, Washington is one of five states currently that has all mail-in voting, meaning uh, all uh, registered voters get a, a ballot in the mail, and then they have uh, 18 days to, to uh, uh, fill it out and turn it back in. They can mail it back in, or they can uh, uh, drop it at a drop box uh, at, at various locations around each county. So um, there's five states that do that currently. There's uh, about four or five others that are looking at moving in that direction this this election. And uh, so it work, works out quite well in the state of Washington. We've done that since 2005, by the way. Um, uh, that came at, uh, at about as a result of the close uh, race between uh, Greg Wire and Ross. And uh, after that, the state started moving towards a, an all-mail-in ballot. A very memorable election that one was. A lot of recounts, if I recall. Now, a lot of these things existed in 2016, correct? Yes. Well, here's something that didn't exist in 2016, COVID-19. Um, what kind of role did the virus end up playing, do you think, during this primary? You know, I don't think it had that big of an impact on the turnout in and of itself. I don't think it impacted the, the turnout because we do have an all-mail-in ballot. I do think it made campaigning uh, challenging. Uh, I think in particular, it became more difficult for challengers to get their message out. So I think it did have some impact on campaigning, but probably not so much on the, on the turnout in the state of Washington. 
And Rachel, I also mentioned uh, that number, that 35% from that 2016 primary. While I'm not surprised, you also did speak with Secretary of State Kim Wyman, and it sounds like they had sort of planned for something like this for this election. Why is that? Well, and usually in past years, um, they used to predict, they used to issue like a press release saying, we predict this kind of turnout. And then they stopped doing that because it's really hard to kind of guess voter behavior. But um, as a rule, I always ask when I'm working on my preview for the election, what do you think turnout might be? What are you telling counties to prepare for? And at first they told me that 50 to 60%, which caught my attention. And then two days later, they're like, oh, we've actually bumped that up to 60 to 70%, which basically I was like, why? Wow, you know? And they said they just wanted counties to be overly prepared. And when we saw the final numbers and I spoke with the Secretary of State, she said two things made her think this was gonna be different. One, she did think COVID was gonna affect turnout, mostly because everybody's home with some of people not having a lot to do. <laughs> and so that ballot that's sitting on your kitchen table, you have a lot more time to actually read through the voter pamphlet. You have time to think about getting that ballot in because you're in the same building as that ballot all day. Um, and then the second thing was that that presidential turnout uh, presidential primary turnout in March was was high and she felt like that was an indicator for what was going to what was going to come in August. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we'll explore that presidential versus statewide primary uh, comparison here in just a moment. But Cornell, uh, we always seem to seek reasons to forecast record turnout in 2008. You know, Barack Obama made his first run, certainly in 2016. We thought at the time political rhetoric had hit its boiling point. Uh, it, how has political polarization played a role in activating voters in a way that maybe it did not four years ago? Well, I think it's been extremely important. Um, the level of polarization has been increasing over the last two or three decades now. And it's probably as high as it's ever been, both in terms of policy uh, polarization, how far apart the parties are in different policy issues, but also in terms of affective polarization. That, uh, what I mean by that is, is how voters feel about the other side, the other partisans. Uh, and you see that in almost all the, uh, the opinion uh, survey data now, uh, we're seeing dramatically uh, increased levels of hostility towards the other side. So, um, now, in comparison to 2016, um, I think there's two factors that are really important in terms of driving up uh, voter turnout, uh, and that is the pandemic and the recession. So in addition to political polarization, what you also have now is this level of fear induced because of the, the pandemic and because of the economic recession, and that really drives up voter turnout. We know from all sorts of uh, uh, data and experiments, actually, that what motivates voters more than anything else is fear, anger, and hatred, as opposed to more positive emotions like hope and passion and empathy. Uh, and so whenever you get a situation where you have high levels of polarization, you have a lot of fear, you can expect extremely high turnout. Very interesting. Now let's pause for a moment and we'll continue the conversation after a quick break. episode of How We Ended Up Here is supported by members of Northwest Public Broadcasting. If you've ever watched a construction crew pour a foundation for a home or office, you realize how important that concrete base is. It's what gives the building its stability. 
like That Concrete, monthly supporters provide a strong foundation for Northwest Public Broadcasting. Dollar by dollar, your donations are an ongoing and reliable income that pays for all your favorite programs and podcasts. Become a monthly supporter for just $5 or $10 a month. You'll be rewarded by knowing your contribution is the cement that makes NWPB your home for your favorite programs. Join today at nwpb.org. And welcome back. Uh, let's go back to the topic of voter turnout and maybe comparing the primaries. And this is for Rachel. Here's what surprised me a bit about the turnout in the state. Not, not necessarily that voters were interested in the election. They should be. But this was the state primary and not the presidential. That saw less than 50% in March. Now, before we started speaking here, you reminded me that's actually still a pretty good number. But did you get any good answers in terms of reasons for a more engaged state election than what we had was an earlier presidential primary? Well, remember in mid-March, that was really when things were ramping up here with the coronavirus pandemic. And when I spoke with Secretary of State Kim Wyman, she said she had believed it was going to hit 60 percent just because of the level of returns that she was seeing kind of in the weeks leading up to um, March 11th, I believe it was, or 10th. And uh, but at that moment, people were distracted. They were concerned. They're seeing, you know, uh, Cases increased dramatically here in the state, and she thinks that the, at that point, that's what people were focused on instead of the ballot that was sitting on their table. And I guess the logical next thought is, how will this affect the general? We usually get about 80% turnout. I think the range has been 78 to 85 the last several uh, presidential general elections. Did you get any forecasts from the Secretary of State's office about what they think this might look like? Well, there's a couple of schools of thought on this. The Secretary of State's office has said that they are telling counties to prepare for up to 90% turnout. And um, certainly, you know, you look at that turnout in August and you think that that is a very engaged electorate that is going to be reflected in the November turnout. But another school of thought is that maybe that turnout in August was just new voters to the primary who always vote in the general. So, uh, you know, it, you might not see that much of a difference from um, high mid 80 turnout that we saw in previous elections. I guess, again, you can't fully predict voter behavior. So we'll We'll just have to wait and see how it looks uh, in November. And I'll kind of pose the same question in a different way to you, Cornell. In the run-up to the election, how do you see maybe campaigns or voter engagement being affected over the next few months as we lead up to what some are predicting could be a record here? Yeah, I expect uh, we'll see close to 90 percent turnout, maybe even exceeding 90 percent turnout. Uh, typically, uh, when you look at the increase in turnout from a primary to the general election, we double it or more here in the state of Washington. Now, of course, when you're in the high 80s already, you don't have that much further to go. But uh, I expect uh, to, to see uh, very high levels of turnout. And in part, what the campaigns are going to try to do is to get their voters out early. I think that's going to be the big push this year because of fears about, uh, about mail-in ballots and the post office and whether or not they'll be uh, able to deliver the ballots on time. And you're already seeing that start in the DNC convention, for instance. Almost all of the uh, speeches were about, about voting, but voting early. And I think you can see a lot of grassroots efforts on both sides 
uh, to try to get their voters uh, to, to mail in their ballots very early. Cornell, I think that sort of half answers my last question for you, sort of along the lines of this political polarization. Maybe it's just my personal thought. It seems unlikely to me that there are a lot of undecided voters still out there. So what do the candidates have left to do to activate their voters? Are you saying getting them out early is one thing that's really important? I think getting them out early um, and, you know, there is still about uh, around 10 percent of the electorate that's undecided. And so I think uh, you'll see uh, uh, candidates try to make a play to them. Uh, obviously, the, the Democratic Party has been trying to do that in their convention by getting uh, a lot of Republicans speaking, for instance, and so trying to appeal to that middle undecided vote at this point. So I think there'll be a play for the undecideds. But uh, I think it's really going to be about motivating their base and getting their base to vote early on. This can be a, a, a base strategy like it has been in every presidential election over the last two decades. And just kind of focusing it back here in Washington State, Rachel, I don't know if you, you have any thoughts about how the next few months might develop as gubernatorial races uh, happen to heat up here. Well, I mean, we still have debates ahead of that, us, and it'll be interesting to see what that debate looks like. I haven't seen sort of the structure of them. I know that there, I think the debate commission has kind of come up with three dates. Um, are they gonna be in person without an audience? Are they going to be via Zoom? Um, you know, like how we've all gotten used to kind of conducting life. Um, so I think you're, we're going to see more of the same of what we saw heading into August, where candidates are trying to find creative ways to reach out to their base and to engage people who sometimes don't start paying attention to the general election until after Labor Day. So we're definitely going to see a ramp up after Labor Day in both television advertising. People are certainly home watching TV more now. So we're going to see a lot of um, money pour into ads and other um, outreach. Rachel, thank you very much, uh, reporter for the Associated Press. We appreciate your reporting. Thank you for joining us on this podcast today. Thank you. And thank you, Cornell Clayton. I know the Foley Institute still has some guests lined up for your distinguished lecture series. You talked about you're going all virtual as well. We are. And uh, this semester, actually, we have a special series on the 2020 election. We're going to have a weekly guest lecture, leading experts uh, from around the country talking about various aspects of the campaign and the election. We'll have a weekly uh, lecture through uh, election day on November 3rd. Well, Cornell, Rachel, thank you very much again. We do have more election news and insights at the Vote 2020 page of nwpb.org. For Northwest Public Broadcasting's How We Ended Up Here, I'm Matt Lovelace.